Welcome back to uh, the Cold War. Mm-hmm. My name is Cameron Riley. How are you, Papa Bear? Doing great, as always. Uh, don't work very hard, get paid well. Why wouldn't I be happy? The Ray Files. How does he get away with it? This week on The Ray Files. He gets away with it again. This week, is he really reap? <laughs> we, go in, we go in deep and ask the people who know him, does he really have a dick? Or was it cut off and he was made to eat it? What? Did Reek have to eat his own penis? I, I think he did. I haven't gotten that cut it off? far, so thank you for... What? Yeah. I'm... The show hasn't even been on the air for like a year yeah, or two, man. Yeah, I mean, I, and that was like so... a season or two before the last season. Okay, I'll, how about this? I'll, I'll make a deal with you. Let's take a week or two off from podcasting, and I will watch all of the Game of Thrones, so then when we come back... We can talk about all of it, and I'll get every reference. So when people when people have been insulting you on Facebook by saying that you're reek, yeah, you don't no even get the idea. implications. No fucking idea. <gasps> yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil it for you. Theon Greyjoy mm-hmm. gets kidnapped by Ramsay Bolton and turned into his bitch slave, oh, and ca- he castrates him, <laughs> cuts his dick off. Right. And and may or may not have made him eat it. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Once again. So anyway, so people, when they say you're reek, they're right. saying you're a little castrated bitch slave. <laughs> and I will be visiting them on their doorstep in the near future. <laughs> and then you'll be able to do a real true murder crime series about that. <laughs> the Ray Files. <laughs> no, what's the X-Files? Yeah, that was it. X-Files thing. <laughs> X-Files. So, no. No. Oh yeah, that yeah, was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No? No, it was. Quit quit that. No, that's the that's the that's the, the fucking That's the other thing. Oh, Twilight the, Zone? The Twilight Zone, yeah. What's Fuck, the X Files thing? It's gone now. I d I don't know. Shit. That's embarrassing. <laughs> Getting old. Getting old. Yeah. Um so last time on the show, right, this is episode one hundred and four, in case anyone's wondering. Uh, last time we we basically had um, riots. The, the the Chinese have arrived in the north. The British have arrived in the south. Um, the Chinese are basically raping, not raping. They're 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 just stealing everything because they're yeah. they're hungry. Yeah. They're basically a ragtag army of starving Chinese. They've come and they've gone. Hey, famine, <laughs> shmamin. Your famine is a good day for us. We're gonna look at this light like switch. these fucking. Woo! These people in the north are just just barely surviving famine conditions, right. and then 150,000 Chinese come in and go, we'll take that. Yeah. Um, we have guns. Yeah. Um, down in the south, of course, uh, General Gracie, the British commander, declares martial law, gives the Japanese <laughs> weapons and tells them to disarm the Vietnamese, gives the French weapons, riots break out, there's yeah. massacres on both sides. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. On Sunday, the 26th of September, 1945, mm-hmm. um, up in Hanoi, the Viet Minh held a quasi-parade for Archimedes Patti. Oh, that's nice. They even had a band playing the Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. And Ho Chi Minh invited him to lunch. 
So it's not like they're trying to suck up to the Americans at all, but they are really trying to suck up to the Americans. <laughs> suck hard. Sorry. As I said in the last episode, Ho is bending over and parting his ass cheeks and lubing himself up no. to try and get the Americans to look favourably upon his cause. He knows right. that the only way that he's going to get out of this uh, without a massive war or new colonial masters is if the Americans come in and support his independence because the Chinese aren't going to support it yeah, and the Soviets aren't supporting it, and I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, the Americans are his best hope, and so he's doing everything to try and befriend them. So he has Archimedes over for, for lunch. They have fish soup, braised chicken, pork. They talk about the situation. Mm. Ho is saying, listen, um, you know, the guy who's the head of French intelligence in China, Jean Satony, who's a former banker from Hanoi, uh, and the son-in-law of Albert Sarah, who was the former governor of Indochina, mm-hmm. he's now in Hanoi. Uh, the Americans have let him come in. Um, he's basically there supposedly to look after the French POWs. But Ho's saying, listen, the French are going to try, try and take control uh, here again. You know, you need to help us out here, man. W- what happened to the Atlantic Charter? What happened to, yeah. you know, freedom for all peoples and self-government and all that kind of stuff? Um, and Paddy's basically like, Dude, um, you're on your own with this. Yeah. There's nothing really I can do. Listen, I get you. You know, I've read. Uh, did you have you read Patty's uh, book on this? No. Patty, uh, many many years later, like in the um, I think the late seventies or early eighties, he wrote his memoirs on this. Um, where is it? I'm trying to bring it up. Ah. Can't find it. It's called Why Vietnam, basically, and he's. He's basically talking about what a clusterfuck this was and, uh, you know, why it didn't have to happen this way. You know, he's saying basically all of this could have been avoided mm-hmm. um, if we if we had just – if anyone had just listened to me, all of this could have been avoided. Wow. Um, but didn't happen. Now, here's a, here's a funny thing. Uh, do you know who his um, secretary basically was when he was uh, in Indochina? No. Who? Julia Childs. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Hello. Oh, yeah. my God. So for people like me who didn't know who Julia Childs was, I'd heard her name because Chrissy's mentioned it, but I didn't know who she was. So she's apparently a massive television uh, chef, right. French, yep. she made French cooking in America, put out a lot of cookbooks on French cooking. So apparently when she was in uh, working for the OSS in Indochina, she uh, married another OSS guy who was an expert on sort of the French. They ended up, after the war, going and living wow. in France mm-hmm. for years. She was introduced to French cooking, and that's why she went back to America and, um, you know, be- became the TV chef. Wow. Taught, taught Americans the to appreciate French cuisine. Right. Anyway, Um. Now, you mentioned, I think, in the, uh, the end of the last episode, uh, Colonel Peter Dewey. Right. 
So he he was the senior OSS guy down in Saigon. Paddy was the senior OSS guy up in Hanoi. Mm-hmm. And um, Dewey wrote a telegram or, or whatever, however they communicated, a cable uh, to Paddy saying, Coach in China, which is what they referred to, the southern part of Vietnam, the tail, right. was burning and urged that all Americans should get the fuck out of Southeast Asia. <laughs> now, the next day, right. Dewey was taking his own advice, heading for the airport to get the fuck out. Yeah. His jeep was fired upon by the Vietnamese, and he was instantly killed. Yeah, took a bullet to the back of the head. Which makes... Peter Dewey, the first of nearly 60,000 Americans to be killed over the next 30 years in Vietnam. Jeez. Yeah, and after he's shot... His body... Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. His body was never found, Mm. and the French and the Vietnamese accused each other of being responsible for the murder. What did you find out about who was responsible, Ray? Oh, well, one of the interprets that I read that, you know, he was um, because the British guy, Gracie, who outranked him, told him to get the hell out of the country. So he was partially doing it just because it was fall, all falling apart. Also because a, uh, a superior officer told him to leave. So he goes to the airport. Um, his plane's not there yet. So he's going to go get some lunch. So he's driving along the road and there's some branches and logs in front of the road and he dry, he has to slow down to get by it. And he sees some Vietnamese, uh, in a ditch nearby and he assumes they're the ones that did it. So because I think his father was the ambassador to France at one point, if I remember correctly, he spoke, uh, impeccable French. So he cussed out the Vietnamese in French as he was going by. They as far as I could tell, probably assumed he was French because he was speaking it, and so opened up some shots at him, hits him. There was a guy with him in the Jeep who was able to get away, but I think, according to the OSS investigation afterwards, that it was um, mistaken identity, but again, that's just, you know, you, you can't trust the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, but that's that was on their official report. Yeah, his father was Charles S. Dewey, who was a banker and politician from Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he ended up uh, serving on the Marshall Plan Committee. Mm. He was uh, elected to Illinois. No, no, he tried to get elected, never did. Right. Um, he was an assistant secretary of the Treasury. Um, yeah, like a power player, big power player in right. the U.S. Uh, government. Oh, no, he was a member of the House of Representatives for four years, 41 to 45. Was he an ambassador? don't know if he was an ambassador. I probably he got go that part and, wrong. There was a reason why he, he spoke was a f- perfect French. Well, maybe just learned it. He was, um, uh, his father was a financial advisor to the Polish government in the late 20s. Um, anyway, he was also distantly related to uh, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey. Oh, wow. Famous, the famous uh, New York governor. Anyway, so, yeah, Peter Dewey, who um, was a weird-looking character, um, <laughs> uh, he got shot anyway, yeah. um, killed. And, yeah, so, but there's more to this Gracie story with him. So, um 
apparently Dewey had requested that he could fly an American flag on his Jeep. Right. And he was told by Gracie that he was not an officer of flag rank. Yes. And so he didn't merit the privilege. <gasps> Dick. Um, now, apparently, this goes back to bad blood between him and Gracie. Dewey had complained about Gracie's treatment of the Vietnamese. Then Gracie had declared Dewey persona non grata. Um, so, yeah. And unfortunately, led to him getting shot. Yeah. Uh, the Viet Minh, the Viet Minh, sorry, later claimed that their troops mistook him for a Frenchman, as you said, and uh, the OSS sort of agreed with that assessment. And Ho Chi Minh actually was so shaken by this that he wrote a personal letter to Truman, expressing right. his regret that um, an American had been. Killed, And as we know from previous episodes, when Americans had been shot down over Tonkin area, uh, Ho was sending guys out to find them, rescue them, bring them back, look after them. So, you know, the Vietnamese, the Viet Minh wouldn't have deliberately shot an American. This must have been a huge blow to Ho. It's right. nothing like a blow to Ho <laughs> no. or a Ho to blow. Uh, trying to... <laughs> build friendly relationships with the Americans right. and then one of his own people kills yeah. one of their guys. Um, but it, it seems, from all accounts, it was an accident. Right. But the other part of that is normally when you have a situation like this, as far as the military is concerned, when you have a situation like this, you let different nationalities put flags on their vehicles so they're, you avoid cases of mistaken identity. So uh, Gracie was just being an absolute dick because he could, and so he was, and plus he's British. But uh, yeah, so you should should have certainly (laughs) extended that courtesy to him. So, But that's not the end of it. So after Dewey is is, uh, shot in the back of the head, the OSS headquarters is then attacked by some Vietnamese units, and this attack actually goes on for several hours until Gracie again sends his Gurkhas to push them away, but he does wait a couple of hours before he does that. And you, like you said, there's this investigation and Lord Mountbatten is pissed as hell because he's an overall command. He gets uh, Sadi, Sadil, however you say his name, and Gracie up, up in Singapore. And he goes, look, I don't know what the fuck is going on, but I want a ceasefire and I want a peaceful settlement to this. Calm everything down. It is getting way out of hand. And Gracie does come under some criticism from Lord Mountbatten, but it doesn't matter. It's way too far. It's um, Feelings are hardened on both sides. Both sides have drawn blood, like you said. This is now getting personal. It is not getting any better. And again, the British and the French are trying to prepare the ground for the French return. This is not how you do it. So the French general, Leclerc, which wasn't his real name, by the way. It was a pseudonym he had adopted because um, he was a supporter of the Vichy government and he uh, changed his name so there would be no repercussions to his family. Right. But we'll call him Leclerc because that's what the history books call him. Um, The French general Leclerc arrived in Saigon in October 1945 to assume authority, Mm -hmm. but it was another seven or eight months before enough of his troops could arrive to allow Gracie to return to India with his uh, 20th Indian Division. Now, Gracie gets criticised a lot, I guess, for his 
actions oh, yeah. down in the south. But really, he was relatively junior. He uh, he was a general, but he wasn't a Mountbatten. He wasn't even a Caesar. Right. Um, and you know, he basically did what a lot of colonial generals in his day would have done. Yeah. They used their bayonets to restore the pre-war order. We talked, uh, you know, fucking a hundred episodes ago about, um, <laughs> you know, Churchill. Uh, sending troops into Greece mm-hmm. to, quote-unquote, restore order. Um, this is what the colonial powers were doing after World War II. Fuck the Atlantic Charter and the self-government and right. self-determination of the people. They wanted to restore order. And, and without you know, like trying to be too cynical or too harsh, I guess in, in the minds of these these leaders at the time, the political leaders of these countries, they want to get the economy up and running as quickly as possible. Right. Um, transitions to new governments or new forms of government uh, are difficult. They take time to settle in. The, the transition periods are always tricky. We see this time and time again when governments are overthrown um, and new governments take over, whether it's... Um, uh, uh, like uh, in Cuba where the, the colonialists, the Batista, the corrupt American government-sponsored uh, uh, economy is overthrown and the communists take over. And when in, when in, or, or you see it in, in, in places like uh, South Africa, right, when, the, when um, mm-hmm. Fuck Knuckles took over, um, Nelson Mandela, <laughs> my friend who I met, shook his hand. Nice. Um, when Nelson Mandela took over... Uh, uh, and all the white people eventually left. Uh, whenever you have these major handovers, it's chaotic. A lot of a lot of intellectual property leaves, either gets killed or just leaves. Uh. The the people that previously ran the factories, ran the businesses, ran the telecommunications infrastructure, ran the banking infrastructure, ran the political infrastructure, the policing, the army. When all of those people leave. And and inexperienced people or less experienced people come in to try and figure out well how do we do all this and right. make it work? Right. It's there's gonna be a massive learning curve now. Unfortunately, and we saw this. You see this in Russia right after the revolution in in 1917. You see it over and over again. What what happens is it doesn't matter how good your intentions are. Massive. Departation, that's not even a word. A massive uh, loss of intellectual property and experience. Um, And uh, as the people are trying to get up to speed, which takes time, trial and error, meanwhile, things uh, uh, go bad. There are usually crops fail, uh, Mm -hmm. hospitals fail, the healthcare system fails, people die... And then that leads, there's trickle-down effects of that, right? And usually they're coming off of a war anyway, a civil war where people have died and the economy's fucked. So then they go through this period where they're trying to ramp up or ramp up quickly as the Soviets did, uh, the Bolsheviks did, and, and, and it just creates more instability, more <sighs> problems. You know, the problems get worse and it takes right. decades, decades usually to get back to square one. That's if you're lucky, because then what often happens, and we saw this with the Soviet Union, then they end up in a Cold War. 
So they, they're like, oh, well, now we need to go and spend billions of dollars on weapons to just try and <laughs> stop the other. Americans from right. bombing us or invading us, right? Or yeah. in Cuba, they end up in, an, in economic sanctions. Well, first an invasion. Americans try to invade them. When that didn't work, they go, fuck it, we're going to throw economic sanctions at you and cripple your economy. No one can trade with you. You can't sell your sugar to us, your rum, your cigars. So then, off the back of all of these existing internal domestic problems that you're trying to overcome, you have to deal with all of that kind of meta-level shit on top of that. So, my point being that if you're a planner of one of these colonial governments that's trying to reconstruct these countries after a war, the, the quickest way to get a country back up and running again, and this is true in Indochina at this period too, the quickest way to get it up and running and functioning is to put the former government, whether it's a corrupt monarchy or a colonial power or whatever, put them back in power, get it up and running as quickly as possible. And there is an argument to be made that that might even be the best thing for the indigenous people of that country. Like you could say, well, the faster the economy gets up and running, you know, the, the, the famine will be taken care of, the crops will be growing... Healthcare will be back to normal, assuming, of course, that the colonial powers aren't complete cunts and treating the natives horrendously like the French were doing in Indochina. Right. But uh, anyway, yeah. I can see the argument for that is what I'm saying. Right. But that that presupposes that things had been pretty good under the French for the last 80 years. And we, we know that they that they weren't. But I'm glad you brought that up because I, I meant to ask this in the previous show. The French have got to know the Vietnamese aren't going to be happy with their coming back. They've got to know that there's going to be some kind of resistance, whether it's general strikes or whether it's passive like Gandhi, or there might actually be guerrilla warfare, sabotage, or open warfare. And so it's going to take a certain amount of time, a certain amount of resources, a shit ton of money, even though it might be American money, because the Americans aren't going to appreciate you wasting money here. So I, I don't see the French benefiting financially for quite some time for this country, but maybe it's a part of trying to get over getting their ass handed to them so early in the war. Because as we know, the British, the Americans, they're not thinking too highly of the French right now. And maybe they need Indochina back something for something other than money. Maybe it's just their, their prestige, their empire or whatever. But but I think I think that's true enough where de Gaulle is absolutely, as we're going to see later, he is absolutely adamant about taking this place back. He wants no negotiations. He wants no compromise. Get it back to the way it was and get France back to the way it was. I'm sure there's a certain amount of of national pride involved in that and also um, projections of power and stability but it's very much about the economy. I mean, the, the, Vietnam had been a mm-hmm. huge boon to the French economy uh, because of all of the tin, the rubber, the oil, the coal that the French were extracting out of Vietnam with basically a free labor force of, yeah. what do we call Almost it? Um, Corvée. Corvée. labor. And so they definitely wanted to get all of that back they wanted to get all they see that as their assets all of those natural resources they want to get that back now yeah um and also you know it's their launching point for other trade in southeast asia etc 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 it's it's a maritime port a safe maritime port for global trade all these sorts of things well um 
Yeah, Speaking of De Gaulle, yeah. I wanted to say that when De Gaulle met with Truman at the White House in August of 1945, Truman actually asked him to promise to eventually give Indochina independence. Mm-hmm. Truman hadn't completely abandoned FDR's ah. demands or for, for the independence, right. but he asked. Now, de Gaulle apparently refused to make a public statement about that, saying if he did, it would just be fine words. But he did promise to work towards giving them self-government <laughs> one day, kind of, maybe, let's see, <laughs> weather permitting. If the planets- In the fullness of time. <laughs> if the planets <laughs> With his up. fingers. Yeah. 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 With his fingers crossed behind his back and his tongue crossed. <laughs> now, apparently Truman didn't have the same deep personal dislike of de Gaulle that FDR had, but he did have doubts as to whether or not de Gaulle was the right man for yeah. the job to pull France together. So it turns out he wasn't. Truman apparently told the British... <laughs> before de Gaulle came to visit, that de Gaulle took himself and his ideas far too seriously and (laughs) to use a saying that we have way back in Missouri, he's something of a pinhead. So that was Truman's view of de Gaulle before he met him. He's a pinhead. (laughs) Nothing like respect. Truman, and I had to look this up, what this meant. Truman said he intended to speak to de Gaulle like a Dutch uncle. Right. Now, apparently that's a thing in America. You speak to somebody like a Dutch uncle. Does that make sense to you? I, I think it might be something that's used more in the north or out west. I've heard the phrase, but only like once or twice in my life. We certainly do not use it in the south. Apparently it means to speak frankly. Yeah. Put it out there. I'm going to speak to you like a Dutch. Now, I read about when I was looking that up, mm-hmm. uh, um, I discovered that things like Dutch courage... Right. And double Dutch. All of these sayings come from the time when England was at war with Holland. Oh, and they came up with all of these insults. <laughs> Dutch courage means you have to drink to have any courage because the Dutch are all fucking cowards. Oh, my God. Um, double Dutch, right. it means it's gibberish. You know, that's, that's like twice as bad as the Dutch. It's double Dutch. <laughs> twice as gibberish. I like that. That means gibberish. Um, there's a whole bunch of others, like all these insults in English referring to Dutch this or Dutch that that uh, came from the British, of course. Yeah. Now, um, a few days later, the State Department, the US State Department, circulated a statement to the effect that the United States did not dispute the French claim of sovereignty over Ooh. Indochina. Yeah. But nobody sent Archimedes Patty a a memo about that until late in October. So in the meantime, he's negotiating uh, as sort of the lead U.S. uh, representative in Hanoi with Ho Chi Minh, but he doesn't really know what the U.S. policy is. So he and Ho are both operating in the dark. Now, I know you've been with a few Ho's in the dark before, (laughs) Ray, and it's not pleasant. You really want to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or unless they're really <laughs> ugly, in which case maybe well, you don't. I don't well, know what the hoes are like in Virginia, but I'm, I can guess <laughs> they come from West Virginia. Uh, you have to go over to West Virginia because you can't afford the hoes in Virginia. You have no, to go to West too, Virginia. Too pricey, can, yeah. I mean, they have four yeah. legs instead of two, too many. They but got, they're cheaper. So. And they've got, they've got too many teeth where you come from. You have to go over to West Virginia. Hey, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know I just, I, you make a very good point because Patty is just flying, flying off the cuff here. He has no idea what his country's official policy is. He doesn't find out. Well, he actually, by the time he finds out he's gone, but the point is, so, and you mentioned this earlier, Ho Chi Minh had this way of, and I, and I personally think it was sincere, but he had this way of making a connection with people of explaining his situation and his sincerity about what he was trying to do for his country, I think came across so well and it came across so genuine that people like Patty and the other Americans, they're, they're actually going to see it. They're like, yeah, I can see your point. And so they were kind of rooting for him. And they were kind of, when they were sending messages back uh, to Washington, you know, it might have had a little bit of skew to it. But the point is, even though Patty doesn't have an official word from Washington, it doesn't matter because at some point before he leaves, his superior OSS chief, Richard Hepner, who's in Kunming, is going to call him up to there. He's going to have to go up there and he is going to shut him down. He's like, I don't want you to have any more political talks with Ho Chi Minh. You're there to look around and to report back. I need you to shut this shit down because you're not following U.S. policy because we do not know what U.S. policy is. So shut it down and don't do it anymore. And so again, like you were saying earlier, Patty can just go, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. This is just me personally. I have no idea what my government is going to do. Yeah, on August 30th, um, Paddy forwarded, forwarded a message from Ho Chi Minh to Truman. It basically said, in order to guarantee the solution to the problem, which the Inter-Allied Commission will be called to resolve in Vietnam, request that American delegates be made members of said commission and that these establish relations with our government. We demand for our government, the only legal body in Vietnam and the only one which fought the Japs' uh, military operations conducted by the Viet Minh League and American officers, the right to have representatives in said commission, provisional government of the Vietnam Republic, President Ho Chi Minh. But Truman didn't reply. Now, why wouldn't Truman reply to Ho Chi Minh's letter, Ray. I've just got to imagine that he had such weightier, bigger, more um, pressing issues that that probably didn't even register on his radar. That's my guess. But I've got to imagine that this little sliver of a dragon-shaped country, or in your your case, uh, seahorse country, um, it just can't be that important. And he's dealing with the French because, as, as you and I know, French elections are coming up. There's the tension with the Soviets. This cannot even be something that he is too worried about. I don't have, but you're right. The, the fact that he did not even have an aide jot down some kind of response, to me, just shows how not important this is to him. What's your take? Yeah, look, he, well, yeah, I'm sure he had other things on his mind in August 1945, like bombing Japan and all that kind of stuff. He, he had he had civilians to kill, you yeah. know, he, he had to think about that. Um, but... You know, he did bring up the issue of independence of right. Indochina when he met with de Gaulle. So he it was in his mind. It's not like he was not thinking of it. It was something that had come up in discussions with de Gaulle. Um, but, yeah, I think he, he, he it would have upset de Gaulle if he had replied, or even if the government ah, on his behalf right. had replied. 
Um, I mean, what are his choices? He either replies and says, listen, we fully support your independence, but de Gaulle's being a dick about it, so there's nothing we can do. Sorry, yeah. Uh, That's going to piss off de Gaulle and also make America look weak. Or he can reply and say, sorry, we don't support your independence. So sorry, bad Better luck next time, which is going to be a PR disaster when Ho, you know, right. prints off a million copies of that and spreads it over the world. And he would. Uh, there's a no. It's a no-win situation, right, for Truman here. So he just decides to ignore the leader of an oppressed people. Now, in historical terms, mm-hmm. obviously, this is a monumental decision and failure by Truman that how many presidents after him are going to have to deal with? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. (laughs) At least five presidents after him are going to have to deal with in the next 30 years. 60,000 Americans will die. Millions of Vietnamese, Cambodians, Laotians are going to die as a result of Truman ignoring this plea for help. And he's not even asking for Truman to support his independence. He's saying, listen, when there is a commission Mm -hmm. to resolve the future of Vietnam, we want to have a seat at the table and we want Americans to have a seat at the table. That's all. Asking too much. Truman could have said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. We we right. should have a commission to discuss the future of Vietnam. Um, fuck de Gaulle if that right. makes him unhappy, really. What's he done for us lately? We just saved your country, so fucking shut up. Yeah. Um, he could have done that. He could have decided to support the cause of the Vietnamese over supporting de Gaulle and the French. Now, okay, Ho was a communist. The Americans probably knew that Mm -hmm. at this stage. But why was he a communist? He was a communist because in the 1920s, Lenin was the only person talking about freeing the oppressed people of the world. Right. Americans weren't talking about it. Um, So... Maybe if the USA had become the champion of the people in deed and not just in word, things might have gone differently. Maybe if Truman had said, hey, listen, yeah, we will support you, but um, we want you to, you know, become capitalists and uh, we will support your independence. But the trade-off is you, you, you have to give up communism and become a capitalist. My feeling with Ho is... Yeah. He wasn't ideologically yeah. that much of a communist. He wasn't married He was to about... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he wanted to equalise the wealth and opportunity and education and healthcare and all those sorts of things of his people. But uh, I don't know. He doesn't seem to have been as ardently communist as, say, Che Guevara was. Um, he, he wasn't really talking about leading a global revolution. He was talking about making life better for his people. And maybe he would have done that deal if it had been offered to him. But as it turns out, of course, Truman just ignored the whole situation and thought, fuck it, it's somebody else's problem down the track. Kick the can. The buck <laughs> stops here unless... unless. <laughs> 
it's Vietnam, in which case I yeah. kick the – he had – you know, Truman had that plaque <laughs> on his desk, the buck stops here. When you turned it around, it right. said kick the can down the road. <laughs> Not my problem. It was on the, the other side of it. No. Right, and that's the part he saw. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The you part s- facing out towards other people was the buck stops here, meaning you bitches. On that's his right. side, it was not not my problem. Kick the not can my, down the on, road as far as I not can. Not on my shift, exactly. But but if we're yeah. going to play al- um, alternate history for a second, um, I think if anybody had been, if anybody else had been president, maybe not FDR because of his personal feelings towards De Gaulle, but if you had someone who had the worldly experience of an FDR who was sitting in that White House, he might go, you know what? Because and, and Truman did feel this way. Truman's like, you know what? I don't think the French are ever really going to fully recover. Um, we've had to save their uh, bacon twice now in two major wars. I, I think it's over for them. Um, maybe a, 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 president, a president who a different person would have said, you know what? I'm going to do something. I'm going to take the middle course. So I'm going to tell the French, you can go back in and administer, but I'm going to give you X amount of time or five years. So you have to, or, or like you said, make out, make that commission and put a uh, hoe on the commission because y'all are going to work this out and not just give the French carte blanche. But the other, but to answer your question as to why, even though the French aren't all that much at this point in the overall global and um, the overall global theme, it's a two for one deal. The British and the French are holding on to each other because the British are worried the Americans are going to pull out of Europe, and so they need an ally. So they're holding on to the French, and whatever you know, if the United States pisses off France, they're going to piss off the British as well, and that's too much for the Americans to do. So I think that that British element was probably a bigger factor than what I originally thought. And Truman just was not the man to make that happen. And I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, so when de Gaulle said on August 24th to Truman, the position of France in Indochina is very simple. France means to recover its sovereignty or sovereignty over Indochina. And at that, the Americans do not blink. So, so everybody can be worried about it or him and Hobb. But the point is, France has stated its position. America has kept quiet. They've got to work out all the details. But we now know what is going to happen in Indochina. And it's worth remembering, too, that another reason the British are supporting the French in this is because... If the French are going to have to give up their colonies, then Ooh, they know that the Americans yes. are going to turn around and France is going to turn around to the British and go, well, you know, quid pro quo, <laughs> motherfuckers. We had to give up <laughs> our colony. You have to give up your colonies. Good point. And the British aren't about to do that, even yeah. though the British at this stage are run by the Labour Party, who are supposedly yeah. socialist-leaning, but they're still not going to give up no. willingly their colonies. Yeah. Because it's, they're still British. No matter what side of the aisle they're on, they're still imperialists. Still white, exactly. Um, but the other thing, again, getting back to the, the, the concept of trade and economics here, okay, so you're Truman, you're talking with the State Department and your planners, and they're saying, okay, so what do, what do we care about here? In, in, in the, if you think about where our interests lie in the question of Vietnam, yes, in theory, on paper, we care about the Atlantic Charter and the independence of peoples and self-determination and that kind of stuff. Right. Practically, though, we want to, we want the economy to be up and running. We want the French economy to get up and running because we don't want to have to support yeah. them endlessly. Right. Marshall Plan, bailouts, loans, we want them up and running. What's the fastest way to get the French economy up and running? 
give them back their colonial possessions, yeah. let them get back to sucking all of the rubber and tin and coal and oil and shit out of Vietnam. That's what's best to get the European economy, the French economy up and running, what's best for us to get our loans repaid from France, makes France strong, a strong France can uh, uh, contain Germany, can help us contain the Soviet Union. Um, So I'm pretty sure that at the end of the day, it's economic and the, the, the military consequences. Uh, if we, okay, flip side is we, we, we don't let France take control. France, mm-hmm. uh, their, their economy takes a, a continued blow. The, the Indian Chinese, the, the Vietnamese might become more economically strong, but what's that going to do for us? What, what, what yeah. interests do we have there? Well, maybe we can start trading with them and we can get their rubber and tin and coal, maybe. Maybe we can start selling them stuff, and that's good. I'm sure there were American corporate interests that were interested in that. But I think the American corporate interests probably were more comfortable dealing with the French than they were dealing with the Vietnamese, even though the Vietnamese spoke French, and we know Ho spoke fluent French. Um, A lot of them would. But culturally... Americans are going to be more comfortable doing business with the French in 1945 than they are doing business with the Vietnamese. So, Absolutely. you know, these things all play a, a, play a massive role in, in planning and strategizing these things, I'm quite sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Can, yeah. I was just going to get back to the main mm. story for a second by saying, let, let's get Ho Chi Minh in some even more trouble. So in early October, more French troops come. They're under the command, as you said, of General Henri Leclerc in Saigon. And a few days later, now that the, the French have more troops there, General Gracie, the biggest cunt um, of this episode, signs an agreement turning over the authority from his occupation command to the French in the areas of all Indochina everything south of the 16th parallel. So it is now officially handed over to the French. Officially, yeah. I think I think Gracie was glad to get the fuck out of there. Um, I think so. But on October October 10th, the Viet Minh uh, in the south under a guy called Tran Van Zhao, Zhao, mm-hmm. Tran Van Zhao, attacked British and French forces. Um, this is on top. This is after you know the initial attacks that happened in September. Right. But they were no match for the French and were driven out of Saigon. Now Ho, as we know, was trying to talk every talk his people out of any military engagement because he knew they weren't going to be able to go toe to toe with the French. Right. But you know he wasn't able to control everybody all of the time, and uh, they got driven out. Now, um, meanwhile, back in the north, Ho is dealing with the Chinese who wanted him to include the Vietnamese nationalists under a guy called Nguyen Hai Tan, who had come over from China with the Chinese army, into his government. Now, these guys, as Mm -hmm. I said, I think in the last episode, they're not communists, they're nationalists. They they style themselves as the Vietnamese Kuomintang, they're they're kind of buddy-buddy with the Chinese. Ho gives some vague promises that he would democratise the government when elections happened later in the year. But, you know, he he didn't trust the nationalists and thought they were too close to the Chinese and they were just going to trade 
French colonial masters for Chinese colonial masters. So he's trying to act friendly, make the right noises, but keep the nationalists sort of at bay as much as possible. Now, one person that he is doing a deal with, which is uh, interesting, is Bao Dai, the former emperor. Right. He's now known as private citizen Vintoy. Vintoy? Let's go with that. Um, and Ho invites him to serve as his like political advisor. He actually told him, the, the former emperor, that it wasn't his idea to force him to advocate. In fact, his kind of plan was that he should have stayed emperor and just made Ho the head of his government. And oh. he basically sucks up, sucks up to him big time, but uh, it's probably more chess games than real affection, I think. Um, yeah. He sees this guy as potentially being able to help him with some sense of legitimacy of the government if the former emperor is on board with what he's doing. As we said in the last episode, when he declared independence, Bao Dai supported it, um, told everyone they should support the Viet Minh. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know how legitimate his, his uh, Ho's statements of affection uh, are for this guy. I think he's just using him uh, short-term, a bit like, you use me. <laughs> I have no problem with that. No, I think you're right. I think it was a PR move because now that everything's gone crazy, Wahuni-shaped in the South, um, on September 26th, you know, Ho puts out a message, a radio message, to his compatriots in the South, and he says, look, I promise to galvanize the energy of the entire nation to help you with your fight. We we seek obviously ultimate victory because his his whole thing about let's not fight, let's not fight, let's not fight. We're not ready. Fuck that. It's it's too late for that now. There's already massive fighting going on around Saigon. He does want his people to be smart about it though. He goes, you know, let's do a protracted war. Let's have you know guerrilla fighting. Let's not just stand up there toe to toe to them like you said. Um, but I did find this interesting. So. Ho is brilliant at trying to compartmentalize and separate. Okay, I've got the Chinese over here. I've got the Americans. I've got the British. I've got the French. Let me try to come up with a strategy for each one of them. Did you read about his strategy when it comes to the Chinese commander, Lu Han? I'm going to start handling my adversaries this way. Basically, he, he says like, Okay, so this guy's got 150, 180,000 troops. There's nothing I can do, so I'm going to appease him as best I can. I'm going to placate him when he demands that I bring nationalists into the government, but maybe I can undermine him. So what he tries to do is he tries to get someone to take opium to him. So I guess he's thinking that Luhan maybe can spend a couple of months high as a kite up in the uh, governor general's palace, just, you know, just doing opium for the next couple of months and get some, and get some freedom of movement. But I, I just appreciated the fact that this Ho Chi Minh was willing to do anything and everything for his country, even give this Chinese uh, commander either on or addicted to opium. Clever. That's what I should do for you, just start <laughs> sending you some opium. <laughs> I was going to send you some for Christmas. It's got a bow on it, so spoiler alert, sorry. Now, more than anything, though, it was the arrival of one man, in Vietnam around about this time, late 1945, that 
leads to the massive breakout of war. And this was General Leclerc's civilian counterpart, Georges Terry d'Angelo. He's the new high commissioner who arrives. Um, and he's an interesting guy. He's a former monk. Wow. That can't be good. <laughs> Well, some people worried, uh, some people back home in France worried that he might be too liberal, too progressive, being a former monk, a man of the cloth. That's not the monks I know. Turns out, yeah. turns out he was a warrior monk. <laughs> <clears throat> he came with nunchucks and a samurai sword no. and shurikens. That's what I think of when I think of a warrior monk. Um and as we're going to see, he's the guy. Right. Yeah, he's the guy under which it basically all falls apart. But that's a little bit later on in the story. Right. So, meanwhile, uh, back in the USSA, um, there are arguments going on in the State Department still about whether or not America should support the Vietnamese or the French, despite Truman's promises to De Gaulle. Apparently, in the State Department, there was a pro-Vietnamese camp and a pro-French camp. Right. There were, and, and I think this is important to understand when we talk about American politics and, and you know, the deep state. Quite often, there will be opposing camps, even in American politics. Um, and I'm not just talking about Democrats and Republicans here. There are opposing mm-hmm. schools of thought about the best ways to achieve America's interests. Um, and, you know, again, they're not going to say, well, listen, let's give up on capitalism and all become communists, but or let's uh, tear down the wealthy elite and, and redistribute the wealth right. on a more even and equitable basis. But they are like, well, maybe our interests are better served if we support the Vietnamese. Maybe, as you said before, the French are spent. Maybe we should be redirecting yeah. our efforts. But the guy who makes the final decision here is Dean Acheson. We've talked about him in the past. He's going to play a big role in future episodes. He was then the Under Secretary of State. He makes a final decision to support the French. Now, this is despite him getting reports from Archimedes Paddy that Ho, while yes, being a leftist, was in control, was a good guy, seemed to have a plan. They decided, you know what, we would much rather deal with the French than uh, uh, Vietnamese. And October 20th, the State Department finally issued an official statement Uh about US policy that declared that the United States did not question French and Dutch sovereignty over their Southeast Asian colonies, but that the US expected the European colonial powers to prepare their subject peoples for the duties and responsibilities of self-government. One day, maybe, (laughs) in the fullness of time, with all things being equal, if the planets align. Yeah. So Ho might not have known the details of U.S. policy, because this is October 20th, but he's starting to get the gist of what's going on. And uh, on September 30th, which is Patty's last day, Ho has one final talk with him. And again, like you said earlier, Patty cannot, for the life of him, explain the current U.S. policy, as far as letting the British and the Chinese assist the French with their takeover. Like you said, it just doesn't make any sense per uh, Tehran, Quebec, Potsdam, the, the Atlantic Charter. Um, 
But Ho, again, Ho never stops working. He's, he's trying any angle that he can. So he says to Patty, what about setting up a pan-Asian community with all the various colonial possessions in the region? And we could work on that. And maybe the, the United Nations could help. But Patty is pretty much limited to repeating the U.S. policy that, look, we're going to let the French come back in and there's nothing I can do about it. And Ho goes, look, but, but you, you misunderstand. I'm not a communist in the American sense. Yes, I've I spent time in the common turn, but I've repaid my, my debt to the USSR. I'm a free agent. I can do whatever I want. And all I care about is my country. But obviously, Ho's not going to get anywhere, and Patty doesn't have the authority to make any changes. So the last thing that Ho does is he asks Patty to take a message to the United States that says, the Vietnamese people will always be grateful for the assistance they received from the United States and would long recall it as a friend and ally, that the American struggle for independence would always serve as an example for Vietnam. So again, another gut-wrenching, pouring-my-heart-out letter to the president that is not going to make a difference and not be replied to. Yeah. When, um, yeah, at this dinner, Ho said, look, I'm aware that Americans think I'm a Moscow puppet. Right. But I've received way more support in the last year from America wow. than I have from Moscow. So why would I be indebted to Moscow? Yeah. He's basically saying, listen, I will, you know, the, I will partner with anybody yeah. who, who helps me out. So I said earlier on, like, um, he would be more than happy to be friendly and, and jump on board with the Americans um, if they would just offer him the hand of friendship but they're not only refusing to do that, they're refusing to even reply to any of his letters. Jeez. Now, um, I mentioned that um, Archimedes Paddy wrote a book. It was actually in 1981, Why Vietnam? Um, he stated that Julia Child, his sort of, I don't think she was a secretary, but she worked for the OSS. Mm-hmm. Um she allegedly, according to him, submitted his position papers on Vietnam at this time to the appropriate authorities back in Washington. Um, like he had, he had written uh, whole arguments for right. why they should support the Viet Minh. But many, many years later, when he retired, he went and looked them up and found that they were still bound in the envelope that she delivered them in, which had never been opened. Fuck. Because they had him pegged as being pro-communist. Yeah. Or they just didn't give a shit. We don't care. You're our local expert on the ground. We don't care what you think. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He wrote, The question rises from time to time as to whether or not the same situation doesn't apply to Iran, to Afghanistan, to El Salvador, or to any other trouble spot in the world. That perhaps there are people who may know the causes that actually led to what followed and have never been approached or asked to give, at least, if not their views, at least to give what facts they have. That is a question. Mm. And I guess that's what we do on this show. That's what we try and do. (laughs) is give the facts about what led to these things. And here we have 
the guy who was the head OSS operative in Hanoi for the in 1945 saying, no one cared. No one in Washington cared what he thought. With all what the point? What's the fucking point <laughs> of putting him there in the first place and ignoring him, telling him to make contact with Ho Chi Minh, <laughs> become an expert? Well, I know what the point was. Yeah. Well, the point was to get the Viet Minh support against the Japanese before the end of the war. Once the war was over, they were like, "That's it. Yeah, don't care anymore." Bit like yeah. the British in World War One with um, Ibn Saud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they wanted the support of the Arabs uh, in World War One, And then as soon as they won the war, they were like, you know, fuck, the, fuck, fuck them, you, you know, fuck, fuck, fuck the Arabs. <laughs> we don't give them, we got what we wanted. We're out, bitches. Jeez. Yeah. Um, back to the economics. So the head of the OSS at the time was the founder of it, Wild Bill Donovan, who is a guy we should do a series about at some t- point, man. Sure. The history, fuck, I've said this to you before, but the history of the CIA. There we that, go. There we go. That's a series, man. Yeah. We could use um, Tim Wiener's book, The History of the CIA. Yeah, we, we probably Fucking some stories we, in there, we'd man. We'd probably disappear after too many episodes, but still it would be a lot of fun. Nah, his book's out there. He's still alive. Oh, good. Okay. Anyway, um... While Bill Donovan, amazing classic character, founded the OSS, which became the CIA, he had a meeting with Patty uh, at some point around here. And regarding American attitudes towards France and Indochina, Donovan said there were many pro-colonial supporters among American oil and rubber interests. There were ideological enthusiasts for a return of France to its colonial empire, and there were British and Dutch support for French colonialist policies in South Asia, Southeast Asia. So, again, here we have it, quoted by Paddy in his book, An OSS Agent, a quote from Bill Donovan, the head of the OSS, (laughs) saying there are American oil and rubber interests that wanted... Indochina to be returned for France. So it doesn't get more fucking plain spoken than that, people. You go, oh, Cameron, Cameron, you're You're a fucking communist, communist, lefty, socialist, Marxist, Stalinist, lefty nutbags. This is fucking head of the OSS, motherfuckers. (laughs) Like, I don't know how much more plainly I can put this for you. The head of the OSS said, yeah, we're giving it back to France because corporate interests wanted to go back to France. Really, that's yeah. That's, that's at the end of the day what matters for all the reasons I said earlier. Yeah. Like, you know, there were, there were genuine economic reasons why they wanted to get France up and running as quickly as possible. And if it meant that the Vietnamese had to be oppressed for another hey. 10, 20, 50 yeah. years, say la vie, right? <laughs> No that's that's it's it's real politics. Exactly. What's more important to us, the freedom of the peoples or the French economy? Right. And the impacts of that on the European economy and the American economy. Okay, so you can't have both. You have to pick one. Which one are you going to pick? Self-determination of an oppressed people or money? 
Th- well, we got to pick yeah. the month. Sh- Thank you very much. They should much. be used to being oppressed. Just a couple more years. No, but just to show, just to, for me to end on a low note, just to show how persuasive um, Ho Chi Minh was. So Patty leaves, his replacement comes in, and there's some conversations. Um, and pretty soon, this replacement sends a request to Washington from Ho that Hanoi would welcome a U.S. effort to mediate the dispute, obviously between them and the France. And that message is like the others, goes unanswered. Well, that's where we're going to leave it. Um, America is dumping uh, the Vietnamese cause, yeah. and they made uh, their decision. Well, yeah, we'll see what happens uh, next on Cold War One Hundred Five. Thanks for listening, folks.